Welcome to all who are listening on KFUO Radio. Today we're going to be looking at uh, Romans chapter 7, and I'd like to begin our study with a word of prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, you truly fill the world and all that's in it. You fill eternity. We recognize today that your name is holy, and yet you have assured us that through holy baptism you have come to dwell within us. And so on this first day of the week, as we turn to your word, we pray that we might hear it and learn it and study it and know the fulfillment of that promise. By your spirit, enter our hearts and make them your dwelling places. May we be humble, humble as we approach your word, humble as we learn today. And may we receive your grace with believing hearts, being so strengthened. We may not be only hearers of your word, but also doers of the word. On this day, we pray that you would restore to us the joy of salvation and give us the faith, the grace, the mercy to put into practice your truth that we learn today. We pray these things through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, for those of you who may have forgotten or may have overlooked, it's exactly one month and one day until you're expected to file your income tax returns. And I don't mean to complain. I do it faithfully every year, but I just find the tax system of our country way too complicated. I go through my receipts, I spend hour upon hour getting everything ready, but then I can't do it myself, so I put it all into a file and send it off to a CPA who has this computer program or who understands all of the tax laws, and he ends up doing my taxes for me. I find the whole thing kind of exasperating, and I become frustrated. That's part of my problem. Every time I'm expected to do more than I think I'm capable of doing, when I'm expected to do something that is above my pay grade, I find things complicated or too detailed. And I suspect that there are a lot of people in the world like me who whenever there are things that that are expected of them, that are beyond their ability, they react in all kinds of funny ways, especially with the taxes, for example. There are some who find it also complicating and say, I want nothing to do with it. I'm not going to pay my taxes this year. They find themselves in all kinds of trouble. And there are those who, who see this complicated tax law and begin looking for all kinds of loopholes of how they can get around the law. And then there are a lot of us who just spend our lives in fear that if we don't do this right, the federal government's going to be after us. You got the image of what I'm talking about? What about God's law? Is God's law too complicated? Is it above our pay grade? Is it impossible for us to do? The problem is when we start thinking that way, then we start doing all kinds of funny, weird, wrong things. 
because we think that the law of God is more than we're capable of. You think of Paul, the Pharisees, as he approached the law in the earlier part of his life, he responded to that law by, by becoming very legalistic. He had to fulfill all of the requirements of the law. He had to fulfill them perfectly. And so he became very strict and very pious. And he failed to recognize the grace of God. His thinking was all out of kilter. Or there were fellow Pharisees like him who looked at the law of God, who worked their tails off to keep the law, and then became self-righteous. They had fulfilled the law's requirements. and They were on good terms with God. But most people feel that the law of God is so heavy that it weighs them down with so much guilt They live all their lives in fear, fear of breaking God's law, fear of breaking the commandments, and so fear of God's wrath and condemnation. Or there are other people who who look at the law of God and see all the things that God requires and say, I don't want any part of that at all. I'm not going to be a Christian. Because all you Christians ever talk about are the laws, the things that I can't do. I don't want any part of that. Because God expects too much. All of those are misuses of the law. In Romans chapter 6, as we studied it last two weeks, St. Paul made the point that we are free from sin. Now in chapter 7, he says we are free from the law. So we need to clarify, what does that mean? How do we properly understand the role of the law? Are we totally free from the law? That we might live as we please? Are we free from the law and we have nothing to do with it at all anymore? What does it mean to be free from the law? And he makes the point several times in this chapter. So Romans chapter 7 verse 1 begins... Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? This is the first time in six chapters that he has addressed the Romans as brothers. He did it in the first chapter as he was introducing himself, but then he lays out this long doctrinal position And now he comes back and he calls them brothers once again, as if to say, this is pretty important. And I'm addressing you as a brother, one who has dealt with the same kinds of issues that I have dealt with, the kind of issues that I'm dealing with now. He said, do you not know? In other words, don't you get it yet? I'm speaking, he says, to those who know the law. Paul was concerned that the Christians in Rome knew the law. They were former Jews, but they were thinking pretty strangely about the law. They they really hadn't yet focused on the gospel. Yes, they believed in Jesus as their Savior, but also, you've got to keep the law. You've got to go back to the Old Testament and do all of those things that, that you were taught all your life if you're really going to be saved. 
And that really is no gospel at all. It's never Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus, Jesus only. And so they were thinking unclearly when it came to the role of the law in their lives. Now the former Jews believed that the law of God was good. And Paul repeats that point over and over again in this chapter. The law is good. It is holy. It is God's law. God has given it to us. They believed that God's law was his design for their lives. And it still is. This is how we live as God's people. This is what he expects of us in our lives. It's his design, his will for our lives. But they couldn't understand or couldn't imagine their relationship with God apart from the law. And so they saw the law as the power of God for their lives. They sought to obey the law in order to gain life. And so they were so focused on the law that they lost sight of Christ. And you would say, how, how could that possibly be? How could people who, who were so focused on God, so focused on being good, doing God's will, lose sight of Christ? Well, I want you to think for a moment of, of parents who send their kids to Sunday school. Because they want their kids to know right from wrong. They want their kids to know the very basics of the religion. They want their kids to grow up to be good people. But somehow in the midst of all of that, they forget that what's really important is that their kids might know Jesus, their Savior. And so the whole focus of Sunday school, the whole focus of their relationship with God is the law. Paul wrote this letter to make sure that no one, no one sees the law without seeing Jesus. Because Paul had been there. And as we'll see in a little bit, he writes personally here. He uses the word I over and over again. I was in this place. I get it. Paul understood his former relationship with the law, and it was terrifying. The law had awakened sin in him, he says. The law is good, he says, but our lives are not good. And so the law is always there accusing us. The law condemns us. And so Paul, like many people, lived in the fear of the law. But now, he says, in baptism, you're free. You're no longer a slave to the law. The, no, the law no longer owns you. It no longer controls you. It no longer motivates you. It no longer drives you. You are free from the power of the law. So, what is the purpose of the law for baptized Christians? Does the law still apply to us, or do we just throw it out completely? Let's follow his argument. Chapter 1, he says, the law is binding. The law is lord over a person only as long as that person is alive. And what he's doing here is laying out a general principle. Any law... 
any law at all only applies to living people. If you're dead, you can't hear the law. If you're dead, you can't obey the law. It has no power over you. Dead people are free from the law. And so the point is death changes to the relationship with the law. It doesn't apply to dead people. So then he becomes more specific, and he, he, he shows us an illustration. He's, he's not really talking about marriage here. He's talking about that principle that the law doesn't apply to dead people. Verses 2 and 3. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the, the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Notice this is all hypothetical. He uses the word if four times in, this, in these verses. If then. Accordingly, here's the result. There's just this one point here. It's about how long marriage vows apply. So when you go to a wedding and you watch a couple stand before God, they pledge their love and faithfulness to one another through all of these various circumstances of life, and it always ends with the words, until death us do part. That puts the extent of of how long these vows apply. As long as we are alive, this is in force until death us do part. And we're faithful to one another. But when a death occurs, when one spouse dies, what Paul is saying, that vow is no longer, it, the end has come. A person whose spouse has died is no longer held to that vow. They are free from that vow and free to go and marry someone else. What he's saying is, death changes things. Death breaks the power of that specific law. Now that's just common sense. That's legal talk. It's the way it is in all laws. But now Paul applies that to the spiritual world. And what he's saying is, a death has occurred. Going back to Romans chapter 6, remember he said, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized in his death? Death happened, and you're connected with that death. And so the law's law's control, the law's ownership of, of you has ended. Death has changed your relationship with the law. And now you're free. You're free to meet the law's demands. And that's the point he's making in in, uh, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. When he says likewise, it's therefore, here's the application. You've died to the law. Literally, you were put to death. 
And it was all God's doing, and it happened in baptism. Through your connection to the body of Christ. And so you've been set free from the lordship, the slavery of sin. The law of God demands justice and punishment for every sin and condemnation and death and hell. We're all subject to its powers to condemn and punish us. But a death has happened. And the law no longer has any hold on you. It's been broken. So now as a Christian, you're free for a new union. You belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. What he's saying is, focus on the gospel. Yes, it was God's law that condemns you. It's law, God's law that requires that you die. A death has taken place. God didn't punish you. God punished his son, Jesus. He died in our place. He performed all of the righteousness. He fulfilled the law of God perfectly. His death is now credited to you. And now you're free to belong to the risen Savior, Jesus. You're free to bear fruit for God. You're free to live a sanctified Christian life. You're free to do good works. No longer motivated by the law. It's not about the commandments and the rules and the regulations. The law of God no longer controls you. The law of God no longer motivates you. The law of God cannot bring about a good life for you. Because you're free in the gospel. Free to do those good works and free to live that life. person who's motivated by the law bears a different kind of fruit. Verses 5, it's kind of a before and after, 5 and 6. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So Paul says, while. Really, it could be translated, when. When we were living in the realm of the flesh, when we were being controlled by the flesh, which is opposed to God's will, when we were letting the flesh determine the way we live, the things we do, When our sinful passions, our sinful natures were in charge, all of that just gets aroused by the law, it's energized by the law, we bear fruit for death. Now follow the line of reasoning. Sinful passions get energized by the law, and that results in death for us. That's the way it used to be. Paul recognized that. Before Christ came, we were, that's where we all were. Our sinful passions got energized by the law. God said, thou shalt not, and we did it anyway, and that brought about death for us. But after, 
After we have died with Christ in holy baptism, we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Released from the law, we have a new life. It's called the way of the Spirit. Not the old way. Not the obsolete way is the way of translating it. It's not about the letter of the law, but now we live the new way of the Spirit. Paul made the same kind of comparison in his letter to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 23, that's the same kind of a before and after kind of arrangement. When we were living in the flesh, when we were trying to keep the law, our sinful passions were aroused. So Paul writes, Now the works of the flesh are evident. And see if this doesn't sound like local news. When you're trying to live by the flesh, when you're being controlled by the law, the works are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what it means to live under the law and live in this constant fear of God's wrath. That's the works of the flesh. But then he goes on to say, you've been released from the law, you're living this new way of the Spirit. What does that look like? Galatians 5, verses 22 and following, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things, there is no law. This is the new way of the Spirit. And the law doesn't enable that. You don't become more loving. You don't become more self-controlled. You don't become more patient by keeping the law. It doesn't motivate you that way. It's only the Spirit at work in the gospel that motivates this kind of fruit in your life. When we start thinking that we live by the law, we become legalists. And once again, we replace the gospel and depend on the law for our salvation. If that's the case, once we start depending on the law, we need to become stricter about keeping the law. Stricter and stricter because then we become holier and holier and more and more righteous in the sight of God and others. What we're trying to do is save ourselves. Then our religion becomes all about enforcing the law. Paul got it because he'd he'd lived as a Pharisee. They had the law of God 
And what did the Pharisees do? They wanted to be so strict about keeping that law that they developed 613 more rules and regulations that they imposed upon everybody in order to make sure that everybody kept the law perfectly. And unfortunately, we've done the very same thing. What does it mean to be a Christian? You ask people out in the world, and they say, you people live by the law. And so for many years, even us in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, were against dancing. You know why we were opposed to dancing? Because it might lead to sexually impure thoughts, immorality, sensuality. And so in order to protect ourselves from those sins, we have a a law that we can't dance. Or what about playing cards? Can't play cards. Because that might lead to gambling, and gambling leads to envy, and that leads us to try to get away from our neighbor the things that belong to him. You can't gamble and be a good Lutheran. Then what about life insurance? For many years, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod was opposed to life insurance because you're not trusting in God. That's kind of idolatry, trying to take responsibility for your future that doesn't belong to you. And so in order to protect ourselves from idolatry, we can't have life insurance. Oh, and the Boy Scouts. Can't be a Boy Scout and be a good Missouri Synod Lutheran. Years ago, we taught... Because you're taking an oath. You're making a vow to another God. And so if you're going to be a good Lutheran, you can't be a Boy Scout. Well, those are all things that are in our past. Do we do the same kind of thing today? Do we make all kinds of laws in order to protect the law and to keep ourselves righteous in the sight of God? Well, what about... Tattoos. Can you be a good Missouri Synod Lutheran and have a tattoo? Well, there are passages of Scripture talk about not marking up your body, and that was part of idol worship, but young people today don't see it that way. But there are those of us who still think that anybody with a tattoo can't be a good Christian. Oh, and that rock and roll music. Well, they don't listen to rock and roll. I don't even know what they listen to anymore. But rock and roll music with that backbeat that arouses all kinds of sensuality in us. Can't listen to rock and roll music and be a good Lutheran. And the list could go on and on and on of things that we forbid in order to protect ourselves and think that we are keeping the law of God And then it becomes frustrating. And people go in all kinds of crazy ways in trying to deal with the law. But the new way, the way of the Spirit, fixes our eyes on Jesus. And you go back to John chapter 15. John 15, Jesus talks about the vine and the branches. And what does it mean to be a Christian? 
It's not about keeping the law. It's not about being strict, not about being righteous. Jesus said simply, I'm the vine, and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can't do anything. It's a a new way of living, a new way of looking at life. We're not slaves to the law. We're not afraid of God's wrath. But now we're free in this new relationship that is ours in holy baptism. Because we died with Christ, we're free to live and produce the good works. Let's pause for a second. Anyone got any reaction? There's a lot more. Don't don't get too excited yet about me saying we're antinomian, that we want nothing to do with the law. It still applies to us, but in a whole new way. Any reaction? Yes, Tim. And we've all known people like this. Good Missouri Synod Lutheran, or people who are raised Missouri Synod Lutheran, let's phrase it that way. People who are raised Missouri Synod Lutherans who live very dark lives, very sinful lives, and who claim that they are okay with God because they're baptized. They, they are antinomians. They want nothing to do with the law. It has no control over them whatsoever. They're f- totally free to live as they're pleased. And Paul dealt with that back in in chapter 6. Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? Talking about cheap grace back there. But, yeah, you're a little bit ahead of yourself, but we're going to get there. Other thoughts? Yeah. The The law is God's word. The law cannot save. Right. There is a purpose for the law, and we will identify at the end of today's lesson the use of the law as a curb, a mirror, and a rule. Absolutely right. They don't save us, but they function in our lives for those purposes. Can those who, who want nothing to do with us because they, they've decided we're too legalistic, can they hear the gospel? Yeah, they can. It needs to be done very gently. No, the Holy the, the, the Spirit always, they can hear it. The Holy Spirit works in the word that they hear to move them to faith. Other thoughts? Well, is Paul saying, if that's the case, then the law of God must be bad? No, as we just said, the law still functions in the lives of Christian people. And that's where he goes in this next section, beginning in in chapter 7, verse 7, part A. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Well, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. 
There he's kind of loosely quoting the book of Deuteronomy, and we won't go there. But, but what he's saying is, is the law a bad thing? Does the law of God put this curse on those who, who, who fail to keep the law perfectly? What about those people who know the law but don't or won't or can't or live this dark life? They don't meet the law's demand because it's frustrating. Now, the law does always accuse. That's the point. Um, We use a Latin phrase all the time, lex semper accusat. The law is always accusing. Does it still accuse us? Yes, because we still are sinners. We need to hear that accusing law. But then we hear the gospel and we know we've been set free. The question he's asking, is the law sin? And his answer is, by no means. The law isn't bad. It's not the law that's the problem. The problem is our sinful flesh, our nature. Does that mean then that the law causes us to sin? No. Again, by no means. Well, Paul's question then is, what's the connection between sin and the law? And that's what he explains in the next verse. Part B, if it had not been for the law, here he goes personal, notice he says I, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So Paul is speaking from personal experience here. He's not trying to answer for anybody else, but he's definitely saying, I know what I'm talking about because I've been there and I've done that. And what he's saying is there's credibility here. In his early life, he knew the law, and the law alerted him to what God's will is. He talks about his early life in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. He said, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, I got the right genealogy. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. I was one of those who kept the law strictly. As to zeal about my religion and my beliefs, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. There wasn't anybody who could accuse me of doing any wrong. Look at the words that he uses. I had confidence... I had all this zeal. I was blameless. What Paul is saying is, in my former life, I was, I was the epitome of self-righteousness. I thought I was a good human being. And it was the law that alerted him to what God's will is. But then, looking back on it, it's like he's saying the Dr. Phil line. How'd that work for you, Paul? Were you really blameless? Were you really confident? 
Were you really that strict? Paul would later write, no, I'm the foremost. I'm the chief of all sinners. I knew the law. And I worked my tail off trying to keep the law. But the law just kept accusing me. And I recognized I was the foremost of all sinners. And so then he says, take, for example, coveting. Paul says, I've been there and I've done that as well. But he, he knew deep down inside that stealing was wrong. Stealing is an outward act, taking something that belongs to you or failing to give people the things that truly belong to them. He recognized by nature that stealing was wrong. But it wasn't until he read the ninth and 10th commandment. Huh. And now it's not just stealing, it's not the act of taking something, but it was even his desires that were, were sinful. The desire to want the things and the people that belong to your neighbor, that's sinful. And he wouldn't have known that had the law not made it clear to him. The law taught him that coveting, sinful desires are wrong. So the law, which was intended for his good, just showed him how sinful he truly was. Back in Romans chapter 3, he wrote, Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Verses 8 and 9. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Oh, wait a minute. He was trying to keep God's law perfectly, but now sin, seizing the opportunity, because he recognized the law, instead of keeping him from sinning, instead of curbing his desires, it produced in him all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law... Sin lies dead. I was once, back then, alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. What he's saying here is, sin isn't the villain. I'm sorry, yeah, sin is the villain, not the law. The law of God is good, it is holy, it is blameless, we'll see in a few minutes. But the, the sin in him, hearing the law got aroused, excited, and encouraged to sin. He makes the point, apart from the law, sin lies dead. Sin is dormant. Sue and I were commenting on the way to church today that with the rains that we've had recently, trees are starting to bud, the grass is turning green, spring is returning. All winter long, it's looked like the world has been dead. But now with the rains, all those plants that lie dormant are now coming to life. He's making the same thing as he, as he talks about the, the law in his life. The sin was dormant before he heard the law. It was always there, but it, it, it wasn't aroused and then the law came in and said, it's not just stealing, it's coveting. All of your desires are sinful. And now sin came alive. And he was inflicted with all kinds of covetousness, desires. 
Think of it this way. You remember when you were a kid and you were having a disagreement with the bully and the bully would put his foot down and draw a line across and step back and say, step across that line. Well, who's going to back down from that? That line in the sand kind of dared you. It energized you. It said, yeah, I'm going to step across that line and then we'll find out what you're going to do about it. Sin does the same thing. The bully's there, the, the line is drawn, and, and it, it um, dares us to step across the line. Another illustration, we were, were um, in a facility the other day, and a, a man was painting some of the, the trim along the, the hallway. And every so often there was a sign that said, wet paint. There was a part of me that just wanted to say, no, that's not wet. No, that's not wet. No, that's not wet. (laughs) There's something about that sign that says wet paint that just energizes us and says, you're going to do it. The law works like that. It says, you shall not. And the sin in us says, "Mm, i got to try it. The sign is to prevent you from getting paint all over you. It's a good thing. But we turn it into a bad thing by our sin and dare to step across the line. Is the problem the sign? Is the problem the bully? Is the problem the the law? No, the problem is with our sinful nature. That's the point that Paul is writing out about here. Sin came alive, and I died. The assurance of life that the law had given him, you know, he he talked about all this confidence that he had. That he was so sure that he was blameless. He was was righteous. The the sin in him just ripped that all down and said, No, no, you're not. You're a sinner. That security that he had was a false security. It gave him a sense of complacency and self-assurance and self-righteousness. But it all had to die. He couldn't see Jesus as long as he was trusting in himself. But he was aware he was a sinner. Thoughts about that before we go on. You see how the law works? Just, just aggravates us at times. It energizes us. It empowers us. It, it entices us to sin. Verses 10 and 11 then. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Once again, sin is the problem, not the law. And follow his line of reasoning here without any of the modifiers. What he says is, sin deceived me and killed me. Sin keeps misusing the law. Sin wants me to keep score. Sin keeps telling me, you're not as bad as those people over there. You're not as bad as those people who have tattoos. You're not as bad as the people who skip church. You're not as bad as 
put in whatever it is you want to put in. It, it just wants us to keep score and recognize ourselves as not as bad as others. Sin causes all kinds of rationalizations. Sin is a little voice within us that says, ah, it'll be okay this time. Nobody's going to be hurt by this. Everybody else is doing it. You're going to find that this is enjoyable. Go ahead and do it. So sin keeps encouraging us to step across the line, to touch the paint. And as soon as we do, what he says is, then like a trap, it springs shut on us. And our sin has deceived us. And it lays out for us the consequences. And we see that what Paul said back in chapter 6 is right. The wages of sin is death. See what he's saying? Sin always deceives me. And it killed me. So we come to verse 12 and following. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The law is holy, the commandment is holy. And righteous and good. It's God's word. It was intended to bring us life. In the book of Leviticus chapter 18 it says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. God gave us the law to protect us. God gave us the law saying, You do this, you'll live. But sin, our sinful natures will not allow us to do it. So the, the rhetorical question follows. Did that which is good, perfect law of God, bring death to me? God wanted me to keep it and live. I don't keep it. And so did this law of God, which was meant to be good, bring death to me? And again, his answer is by no means. Not the law's problem. Sin did. So then, so then what is the purpose of the law? We said already that sin always accuses, it always condemns us, it makes us aware that we are sinful people. But in our catechism, as we look at all of Scripture, it identifies that there are three primary chief purposes of the law for Christian people. The law checks the curse, the coarse outbursts of sin in the world. The law says 60 miles an hour. And if you go 95 miles an hour, you're going to get a ticket. Now, is, is that law a bad thing? The law is a good thing to keep people from going crazy on the highway. The image that we use is a curb. Curb on the side of the road, for example. 
Imagine that, that you're going down the road and you lose control. And the car hits the curb and automatically it pushes you back towards the middle again. And you go too far and you're, you're about to go out of bounds in the other direction and you hit the curb and it pushes you back again. The law of God works like a curb. It says you're going through life and you're, you're looking uh, at other gods. You're raising up your money. You're putting your trust in all kinds of stuff. The law of God says you shall have no other gods. You get over here and you're angry with somebody and, and you're, you're going to threaten their lives. You're going to kill them. The law of God says, you're out of bounds. And so it checks us. It keeps us from going way out of bounds. The law of God serves a good purpose for us Christians. Secondly, the law of God works like a mirror. We got this big mirror in our bathroom. And every morning I am forced to take a look into that mirror. And it isn't a pretty picture. What I see is all of the pimples and all of the hair that are out of place and growing in places they didn't used to grow. I see my, it doesn't take off any pounds. It shows me myself just exactly the way I am. So the law of God works like a mirror. When I look into what God says in his word and says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, and I find myself saying things that, it, that I know are sinful, the law is there showing me just how bad that really is. And what I really need is to hear the gospel of Jesus. It, 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 the law in a sense, directs me to my need for a Savior. It works like a mirror, showing me how bad and sinful I really am. And then the third image is that of a rule, or a guide to Christian living. How do Christian people live? What, what does God expect of us? Remember when God first gave the Ten Commandments? Pastor Smith talked about this a few weeks ago. God brought them to the base of Mount Sinai and he said, I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. It, it, you, it, they didn't have to do these things in order to become God's people. They were already God's people. So what did God want them to do as his people? How did he want them to live? Here's the guy. Have no other gods. Don't misuse my name. Remember my word and the Sabbath day, keep holy. And so the law of God, while, while we Christians read it today, recognize this, this is a guide for us. This is how God wants us to live as his redeemed people. Is the law a bad thing? No, the law is a good thing. It's the, the law of God. It's his word. It's, it's his will for our lives. It's our sin that messes up the law and drives us deeper and deeper into sin and, and gets us into all this goofy thinking where we're going to reject the law completely. No, that's not God's will. We're going to find loopholes in the law. No, that's not God's will either. We're going to become rebellious. No, we're not going to become rebellious. We're the people of God, redeemed by Christ Jesus. We abide in him and he in us, and so we're going to live. 
as the people of Christ Jesus. A new way of the Spirit, motivated by the Spirit, by the gospel, not by the law. Thank you.